This podcast is brought to you by my manic delusions of grandeur. Yes, I am your host, legendary coxman, Zachary Lane Matthews. I'm the Colossus of Clit. I'm the Sultan of Twat. Oh boy. Um, okay, so we're what we're going to do here is I'm going to do half Call of the Void, half reading of Fear and Love in Las Vegas because I'm on one king hell of a fucking manic right now. And I got Stephanie in here to kind of reel me in a little bit, but I'm just all over the place. So what if this turns into, that's what it's going to be. Well, clearly I'm not very good at reeling you in, but I'll do my best. Yeah, I mean, you need like a Thorazine needle or some shit like that. You're really good at me. Yeah, we're fresh out of tranquilizer darts. Well, shit. Sorry. Okay, so I'm going to bullshit a little bit here and there, and then I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to read this book, maybe talk about it a little bit in between, but uh, I'm not, I'm largely apolitical. I mean, I may be a, uh, maybe a nihilist or anarchist. I'm not sure yet. I don't know where, I don't know where my, I have no loyalties to, you know, the two parties that were allowed or the uh, something in between the rest of them where you're just wasting your vote. So I'll make a little political rant. I don't usually discuss politics and people discussing politics with me kind of makes my fucking ass itch. I want to just fucking vomit all over them whenever they're... And I mean, around here, you know what kind of politics they're talking. I mean, it's about like... Somebody's going to say the N word in casual conversations. I wonder who he supports. But anyhow, uh, I don't know. I see it like this. And this is going to be a very, very clumsy analogy here, but I'm going to try to make it work. I hadn't thought about it that much. Okay. So we have an election. And, you know, that the Trump wins. Okay. So say you're working at a restaurant and you're the manager there and you decide what's going on. So you take a vote of your employees and they choose this guy, this real arrogant, narcissistic motherfucker. Womanizer. Yeah. Womanizer. And just like basically every ungodly thing you could think about, despite (laughs) the evangelical uh, Christians supporting him, the, you know, the fundies all over him, even though he's just the most giant piece of shit. And it's well documented over the years. I mean, it's not like this guy came out of nowhere. You could have studied him before he became a candidate, but I don't, I guess, I mean, I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt, but people were disenfranchised with the system. And they're like, you know, it would be funny if we'd elected a reality TV star, some trust fund retard. And I could say retard because I have bipolar disorder and it's definitely retarding my life and it's definitely retarding my quality of life. I'm mentally retarded. So I can say fucking retarded. I think you're more emotionally retarded. I'll, I'll die on this hill. All right. Any day. Okay. So you got this restaurant going and uh, they choose this guy. Okay. Well, whatever. That's the guy you want. We'll bring him in. Now, this guy comes in and he talks about how he's, I cook the best steaks. Everybody says it. 
it was you like who who's everybody but you know whatever you know you like somebody with confidence you know tends to you know get the job done or at least like convince people he got the job done in a good Mm -hmm. fashion but he doesn't really do a good job he's like real shoddy (laughs) but like despite whatever he does the employees that voted him in support him wholeheartedly while the ones that didn't constantly berate him and are naysayers well sooner or later this this cook in the kitchen that we've elected to employ he starts giving our recipes to a rival restaurant and that's not cool at all and but nobody cares apparently so i mean it's a non-issue i mean people do care but like most people are apathetic or they like i said support whatever he does well there's certain occasions where he deliberately does something shitty like for instance he squatted over the deep fryer and took a big shit into it like at first he was in denial even though we witnessed him with his feet on the side of the deep fryer dropping a chocolate log into the motherfucker. Well, we've seen this happen, and he, of course, denies it. I never shot in there. I didn't do it. And then we go, well, we saw you. Fake news! Um, you, you're, on, you're on the security cameras. That's a deep fake. Okay. And all his, all his friends are like, yeah, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. And like any narcissist, they work into different situations to where, you know, read the narcissist's prayer. (laughs) The narcissist's prayer goes as follows. That didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserved it. And he operates on this this system here, and he goes through the cycle at various levels for whatever bullshit he did. This is going to get controversial. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> I think we're already there. Yeah, I mean, it's it gets worse. So just like... And you're not sorry. Strap the fuck in. I'm not sorry. I'm not... I don't give a shit. I'm going to get both y'all. I'm going to get both sides here. Both y'all. All two of you. Because I, I'm this enlightened being that like just resides in this ivory tower. And I just know so much better than anyone else. I mean, I don't... Sometimes it's too much to bear to be the most intelligent man around and the most reasonable the and man with the most, most humble. Yeah. It's hard to be humble when you have the capacity for critical thinking. Sure, sure. You know, most people don't. True. So after this fudgy corn log is dropped into the hot grease, um, he actually has one of his friends to speak on his behalf. 
And this person goes up and talks to the manager and he said, by no means did he shit in the deep fryer. That's absurd. I mean, this, this kind of accusation is just ludicrous. And the manager goes, okay, even though we saw all of it. But just after his really good friend spent that time defending him, he comes up and goes, I shat in the deep fryer on purpose. The turd was huge. It was tremendous. And he, he completely undermines <laughs> his spokesperson. Anyway, he keeps fucking around and people kind of sour on him. He doesn't, he doesn't like gain any new supporters and his uh, dissenters are just at a fever pitch at this point. They've got a laundry list of shit that this dude did wrong at the restaurant and how he fucked shit up. Anyhow, he, uh, his job's, you know, at jeopardy here. Well, this other guy comes in for the job and he is nothing spectacular at all. He's like basically a warm body to put in front of the grill. But people go, yeah, this guy's not worth a shit really, but we got to get this other guy the fuck out of here. So the employees vote in this other guy. The first, the first cook throws a big fit about it. Just like a fucking child on the schoolyard. It's not fair contending, you know, contending the set rules of the game and saying that you cheated every time somebody gets one over, gets like a win over him. They must have cheated, obviously, because he is the greatest thing in the world. He's the second coming. If you ask some, you know, fundamentalist, they got a bunch of essays about how Jesus plucked him out of a crowd and put him right in the office. But he throws a big shit about it. Then he calls a bunch of his thug buddies to come in the restaurant and start fucking shit up and stealing things. But when it comes down to it, he denies that he did any of that. And he said that he would have those guys' backs and get them out of trouble, but they ended up being jailed. You know, he kind of left them high and dry. He's still scheming, though. Somewhere out there. Anyhow, we got this other guy in there. He's been an assistant to a cook before, mm -hmm. I guess. And he gets in there and the best he can do is like middle of the fucking road. Just basic cursory levels of knowing how to cook. And like he pulls he pulled the potatoes out of the oven too quick and they weren't done. And we sent out a bunch of hard potatoes. He yanked a deep fryer basket out of the deep fryer quickly and burned a whole bunch of people in the kitchen. He just keeps fucking up orders and stuff like that. And, and he's very slow. He's real slow. I mean, he could almost fall asleep on the job <laughs> and just takes forever on anything. But he's got, he's got his assistant, who is a half urban chick that like pretends to be 
more urban than she is, but she's really a fucking narc. And anyhow, he said that he would do these certain things and he would do all the prep and he would take some of the load off some of the employees. And then when he got in there, he said, I'm not going to do that. Even though he promised it, uh, he said a lot of things he was going to do and then he did like none of them. And because of his constant fuck ups, the prices of steak go up and the restaurant is like working at a loss. So they have to raise the prices of all the steaks and stuff like that. And the employees are not happy or the employees are not happy with this because they didn't get paid. any. They can't get a raise because we're having to raise prices on fucking product. And the customers are really pissed because they're having to pay a whole dollar 75 or $2 more than what they usually pay. Well, there's a surge of support to get the other guy back and it's vehement. He's not back, but he's planning on coming back and it could be a, very well could be a possibility. The other guy, his time is running out, even though the first guy's time is running out too. But like, you know, every, every, cook one day has to hang up his spatula and these guys have been hanging on to cooking for way too long. Like they need to get the fuck out of the kitchen. So we have this contention between employees who their guys, the other guy and their guy, the other, other group is their guys, the other guy. And they just are at each other. They can't have a decent, discussion or debate about it they just just vitriol between both groups and i mean meanwhile neither of these guys are qualified to do the job the new guy at the grill continues to fall out of favor but there's still support for him because we can't have that other guy coming back and then the other group is like mm, they kind of question the old guy a little bit because he's saying some different things now and you know he's kind of wishy-washy and you know you notice he kind of he has his own narrative and his own reality and you you can tell he's constantly doing speed but he's he's it's obvious but he he denies it completely he also has a really poor diet and he's doing his heart no favors. But as it comes down to it, both groups, their opposite support is basically support because they don't want the other guy to do it. And that is the state of the union, folks. That's what's going on right now. And I don't know, man. I just, I walk around this haze of like hostility and, just like I feel, I feel the contention that's going on here in this country and it's doesn't feel good. And I wish you guys would just fuck off because I can't help but feel that shit. Y'all have almost burnt my empathy out and I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad about it because I consider it a weakness that I care about other people. I wish I could be ruthless and like not give a shit and, 
I don't know. I've been between that and mental illness. I've been completely nerfed in this lifetime. If I didn't have any of that, I would have taken this whole fucking planet over a long time ago. What do you think about that? I think you like the idea of taking over the planet for sure. But uh, do you have the energy for that? Really? Yeah, I don't know if I, you know, I had the responsibility to do that. And that's a lot. Of I mean, I'm looking for people to side with me. I'm looking for a a large group of people that want the world to change in their favor. But I don't know. Y'all keep picking sides and whatever. I don't think. I don't think you're ready for the kind of progress that I would make in this country. No, nobody's ready for that. Shit would get weird for a while, but I think it would be better in the long run. You think so? <sighs> I mean, what could make it better? I don't I don't know. I don't have any answers. I don't know. It's time. It's this is America's jumped the shark a long time ago. It's getting about the time where this cult gets Waco'd in the end. <laughs> I love your sunny disposition. Oh, yeah. Delusions of grandeur and the ever-present darkness and depression and pessimistic ideas. You're just a cynical asshole. Truth. Okay, I'm done waxing political here, and I need to really get to reading this book. Um, We've entered part two of the book about halfway through. I'm going to try to run through three chapters here and then maybe I'll rant about something else at the end. But for now, I need to start reading. Okay, part two. About 20 miles east of Baker, I stopped to check the drug bag. The sun was hot and I felt like killing something, anything, even a big lizard. Drill the fucker. I got my attorney's 357 Magnum out of the trunk and spun the cylinder. It was loaded all the way around. Long, nasty little slugs. 158 grains with a fine, flat trajectory and painted Aztec gold on the tips. I blew the horn a few times, hoping to call up an iguana, get the buggers moving. They were out there, I knew, in that goddamn sea of cactus, hunkered down, barely breathing. And every one of the stinking little bastards was loaded with deadly poison. Three fast explosions knocked me off balance. Three deafening double action blasts from the 357 in my right hand. Jesus! Firing at nothing for no reason at all. Bad craziness. I tossed the gun into the front seat of the shark and stared nervously at the hallway. No cars either way. The road was empty for two or three miles in both directions. Fine luck. It would not do to be found in the desert under these circumstances, fired wildly into the cactus from a car full of drugs. And especially not now, on the lamb from the highway patrol. Awkward questions would arise. Well now, Mr. Uh, Duke, you understand, of course, that it is legal, illegal to discharge a firearm of any kind while standing on a federal highway? What? Even in self-defense? This goddamn gun has a hair trigger, officer. The truth is, I only meant to fire once. Just to scare the little bastards. A heavy stare, then speaking very slowly. Are you saying, Mr. Duke, that you were attacked out here? Well, 
no, not literally attacked, officer, but seriously menaced. I stopped to piss, and the minute I stepped out of the car, these filthy little bags of poison were all around me. They moved like greased lightning. Would the story hold up? No. They placed me under arrest and routinely searched the car, and when that happened, all kinds of savage hell would break loose. They would never believe all these drugs were necessary to my work, that in truth I was a professional journalist on my way to Las Vegas to cover the National District Attorney's Conference on Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Just samples, officer. I got this stuff off the road, man, for the Neo-American Church back in Barstow. He started acting funny, so I worked him over. Would they buy this? No. They would lock me in some hell hole of a jail and beat me on the kidneys with big branches, causing me to piss blood for years to come. Luckily, nobody bothered me while I ran a quick inventory on the kit bag. The stash was a hopeless mess. All churned together and half-crushed. Some of the mescaline pellets had disintegrated into a reddish-brown powder, but I counted about 35 or 40 still intact. My attorney had eaten all the reds, but there was quite a bit of speed left. No more grass. The Coke bottle was empty. One acid blotter, a nice brown lump of opium hash, <coughs> and six loose amyls. Not enough for anything serious, but a careful rationing of the mescaline would probably get us through the four-day drug conference. On the outskirts of Vegas, I stopped at a neighborhood pharmacy and bought two quarts of gold tequila, two-fifths of Chivas Regal, and a pint of ether. I was tempted to ask for some more amyls. My angina pectoris was starting to act up. But the druggist had the eyes of a mean Baptist hysteric. I told him I need the ether to get the tape off my legs. But by that time, he'd already rung the stuff up and bagged it. He didn't give a fuck about ether. I wonder what he'd say if I'd asked him for $22 worth of Romilar and a tank of nitrous oxide. Probably he would have sold it to me. Why not? Free enterprise. Give the public what it needs. Especially this bad, sweaty, nervous-talking fellow with tape all over his legs and this terrible cough, along with angina pectoris and these god-awful aneuristic flashes every time he gets in the sun. I mean, this fellow was in bad shape, officer. How the hell was I to know he'd walk straight over his car and start abusing those drugs? How indeed. I lingered a moment at the magazine rack, then got a grip on myself and hurried out of the car. The idea of going completely crazy on laughing gas in the middle of a DA's drug conference had a definite warped appeal. But on the first day, I thought. Save that for later. No point getting busted and committed before the conference even starts. I stole a review journal from a rack in the parking lot, but I threw it away after reading a story on page one. Surgery uncertain after eyes removed. Baltimore, UPI. Doctors said Friday they were uncertain whether surgery would succeed in res restoring the eyesight of a young man who pulled out his eyes while suffering the effects of a drug overdose in a jail cell. Charles Ennis Jr., 25, underwent surgery late Thursday at Maryland General Hospital, but doctors said it may be weeks before they could determine the outcome. A statement issued by the hospital reported that Ennis had no light perception in either eye prior to surgery, and the possibility he will ever have light perception is extremely poor. 
Ennis, son of a prominent Massachusetts Republican, was found in a jail cell Thursday by a turnkey who said Ennis had pulled out his eyeballs. Ennis was arrested Wednesday night while walking nude through a neighborhood near where he lived. He was examined at Mercy Hospital and then placed in a jail cell. Police and one of Ennis' friends said he had taken an overdose of animal tranquilizer. Police reported the drug was PCP, a Park Davis product not sold for human medical purposes since 1963. However, a spokesman for Park Davis said he thought the drug might be available on the black market. Taken alone, the spokesman said that PCP effects would not last more than 12 to 14 hours. However, the effects of PCP combined with a hallucinogen, such as LSD, were not known. Ennis told a neighbor last Saturday, the day after he first took the drug, that his eyes were bothering him and that he could not read. Wednesday night, police said Ennis seemed to be in a deeply depressed state and so impervious to pain that he did not scream when he pulled out his own eyes. Okay, I'm going to take a little break. Um, full disclosure, I, I quit for a minute to finish a beer. Uh, and I uh, clipped my fingernails and thawed them. Because uh, I, I read a magazine article, probably Cosmo or something like that, that said that I would need to clip my fingernails before inserting them into my partner. And I thought that was that was pretty odd advice because I usually just throw them in the wastebasket. But anyway, how many people do you think I pissed off with that first part there? Uh, I don't know. Your your audience should know you well enough by now. Yeah, I mean, I I'm gonna hit you both. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit whatever side you chose, and I don't know. I might neglect the uh, third party people because they're not relevant anyway. Well, I figure most <laughs> of your audience members are just, you know. Assholes like me. Libertarians, man. Yeah, well, I, I, hit, I hit them a little bit. I don't know. What, what else am I going to do? Go after the Green Party or whatever the <laughs> fuck else is out there? Oh, I don't even do? know anymore. I've never voted in my life. <laughs> Democracy is a fucking scam. Is that irony? Is I mean, I get confused. I don't irony know. or coincidence that you have it's just such strong political beliefs. I do. <laughs> I do. I just, my political beliefs are, I know better than everybody well, else. Well, I'm not voting again since, you know, uh, my well, guy lost in the last election. I mean, shit. You know, my guy. Kanye? Yeah. Fuck. That's awful. <laughs> I mean, that's oh the, the things way, the, the fucking precedent that is set now, that's within the realm of reality now. God, it's terrifying. That we're marching towards idiocracy. What's Arnie up to these days? Can we get him over here? He's got a little uh, mini horse and a donkey. He can... He's on Arnie? Nah, I'm just kidding. He's, he's on he's Reddit a... now. <laughs> he, <laughs> well, he he's like not answers a, questions he's not a on Reddit. Natural born U.S. citizen. So he's, he's like skin's not... all sagging and shit. I know. He's Austrian. Yeah, I think his daddy was a Nazi, I think. Oh, huh. well. And, like, his dad, 
I don't know how much, how much, uh, legitimacy to this claim, but like I saw some kind of half-assed, uh, pseudo documentary about him on VH1 or something like that. But like, oh, snap. he was proud. He was proud of the, uh, Arnie's <laughs> brothers, but not of Arnie. And he said that he must've been sired by the milkman. <laughs> and I guess that drove, wow. that drove Arnie into, you know, what he became and all oh. that, you know, a womanizer, wow. but, <laughs> but yeah. And a, a cigar aficionado, he is a cigar aficionado. but yeah. Anyway, yeah, that drove him. I guess he had that drive behind him. You know, before he ever came over and he was in movies, he had like a very successful like masonry business or something huh. like that. He was already uh, that's like how he made his so first boss. million. So he come over here and he did first, some of the first movies uh, he did. They ADR'd his dialogue <laughs> and later with somebody with a fucking rootin' tootin' American accent. And, <laughs> did he I don't even know. speak in... Conan the Barbarian. I don't know. Well, I mean, Lou Ferrigno speak as Hercules in New York or whatever. Did he have to, though? He was deaf. Hmm. Lou Ferrigno was, so he was probably... I did not know that. Thought they're not sound so coherent. You know, I'm heading that way. You can so. do that because... Yeah, You're I can do that impaired. because I'm fucking hearing impaired. I can't do that because I cannot and I'm a fucking of- cripple and... You know, mentally and physically. Goddamn Phoebe. Anyhow, I guess, shit, I guess we better move on in the book because it is close to midnight. It's getting late. The vocal fry is oh, strong shit. here. I'm vocal frying? No, I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like. Well, I have been for a few weeks. I was now. like, I'm just going to go like. Put a scraper down my throat. No, your and just voice take is care perfect, of all like of always. You know, like, like everything else about me. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see here. You gotta, you gotta hang on to that anger, that fury. Oh God! It's the final hiding place. It's the final fig leaf. Oh, Jesus! You gotta show your neck. <clears throat> Put your hair up. Show your neck. It's like. It's like a border town. If you've never seen The Devil's Advocate, do yourself a favor and just keep it going. Do not. Yeah, it's just like. No, seriously. It's like 30 minute long monologues by. uh, You know they're Al Pacino. They offered this movie to him four times and he declined it. And then they got with him and did rewrites with him. And then all of a sudden he accepted it. Basically, he pitched the fucking script to himself and i imagine he had a lot to do with the dialogue that went on yeah the script probably looked like you know keanu oh whoa that's that's crazy yeah, which man keanu and had like al pacino's a, like just talk and sound like a <laughs> lunatic asshole yeah and like with everybody else like chewing up the scenery like keanu's like a non-entity on screen i mean you saw him in like you know Bram Stoker's Dracula and oh, trying to do the English accent. In this one, he's from Florida, but for some reason has a Southern accent that like just comes and goes throughout the movie. I mean, there are some Floridians. There are parts of Florida that their accents are pretty Southern. And then like how Pacino talks about, 
which he's Satan. Big reveal, by the way. He's also like he, Keanu's like dad. Like he didn't see it coming. So, but like he's spoilers, talking about. Sorry. He's talked about fucking this woman until she couldn't walk, oh, and like God. she gets up to go to the bathroom, <laughs> and she she notices she can't walk, and she looks back at me, and like she can't believe it, and and it wasn't the fucking Trojan army that fucked her. Just a little old me. God. And he's just like this, just, a fucking creep throughout this movie, and I can't stop quoting the movie. No, he can't. It's true. Oh, it's boy. true. We need to get back on track. All right. Oh, shit. Read, read us. Well, we're making content. Who gives a shit? Read I'm, to us. I'm padding this shit out. <laughs> I mean, God damn. What, what kind of fucking arrogance and hubris that I have to think people would like to hear me read a whole fucking book. Well, I'm a terrible enabler. I, I do tell you how wonderful you are and uh, how mesmerizing your voice is. This is making me no money. Hey, and if any of y'all listening, please join the One More Mosh Pit Productions group on Facebook. It's a, I guess it's a asylum for me on Facebook. Maybe I can just isolate myself to there and just have like friends come in and visit me because I have been getting out of hand on Facebook. I've been, I go to roast pages and I roast people like, like scorch the earth roasts. And yeah, like, all but those trolls that you hate on online, all the trolls. It, it's it's him. It's Zach. He it's, is yeah, like it's, king troll of And I'm like, still. I'm a fucking verbose brute. Like, I'm, I'm murdering with words out there. Like, verbal homicide. Um, anyway, yeah. And then, then I just, like, go and pick fights. Just basically. I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of look at what somebody believes and, like, I debate against that or I, you know, I'm a naysayer to what they believe and I just piss them off until the point that they're like really mad and like I hurt their feelings and stuff like that. And they'll delete their accounts and shit over it. And if they say anything like threatening and violent to me, that's when I report them and then their fucking account gets banned. Yeah. If you're, Friends with Zach on Facebook. Do not Just engage. Beware. He is a cyber bully. Yeah. A troll. Just an asshole in general. I guess it's your only flaw. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> I have a mountain of flaws. Okay. Chapter two. Another day. Another convertible. Another hotel full of cops. The first order of business was to get rid of the red shark. It was too obvious. Too many people might recognize it, especially the Vegas police. Although, as far as they knew, the thing was already back at home in L.A. It was last seen running at top speed across Death Valley on Interstate 15, stopped and warned in Baker by the CHP, then suddenly disappeared. The last place they would look for it, I felt, was a rental car lot in the airport. I had to go out there anyway to meet my attorney, he would be arriving from L.A. in the late afternoon. I drove very quietly on the freeway, gripping my normal instinct for bursts of acceleration and sudden lane changes, trying to remain inconspicuous. 
And when I got there, I parked the shark between the two old Air Force buses and a utility lot about half a mile from the terminal. Very tall buses. Make it hard as possible for the fuckers. A little walking never hurt anybody. By the time I got to the terminal, I was pouring sweat, but nothing abnormal. I tend to sweat heavily in warm climates. My clothes were soaking wet from dusk to do- from dawn to dusk. This worried me at first, but when I went to the doctor and described my normal daily intake of booze, drugs, and poison, he told me to come back when the sweating stopped. That would be the danger point, he said, a sign that my body's desperately overworked flushing mechanism had broken down completely. I have a great faith in the natural processes, he said, but in your case, well, I find no precedent. We'll just have to wait and see, then work with what's left. I spent about two hours in the bar drinking Bloody Marys for the V8 nutritional content and watching the flights from L.A. I'd eaten nothing but grapefruit for about 24 hours, and my head was adrift from its moorings. You better watch yourself, I thought. There are limits to what the human body can endure. You don't want to break down and start bleeding from the ears right here in the terminal. Not in this town. In Las Vegas, they kill the weak and deranged. I realized this and kept quiet even when I felt symptoms of a terminal blood sweat coming on. But this passed. I saw the cocktail waitress getting nervous, so I forced myself to get up and walk stiffly out of the bar. No sign of my attorney. Down to the VIP car rental booth where I traded the red shark in for a white Cadillac convertible. This goddamn Chevy has caused me a lot of problems, I told them. I get the feeling that people are putting me down, especially in gas stations, when I have to get out and open the hood manually. Well, of course, said the man behind the desk. What you need, I think, is one of our Mercedes 600 Town Cruiser specials with air conditioning. You can even carry your own fuel, your fuel if you want. We make that available. Do I look like a goddamn Nazi, I said. I'll have a natural American car or nothing at all. They called up the white, white Coupe de Ville at once. Everything was automatic. I could sit in the red leather driver's seat and make every inch of the car jump by touching the power buttons. It was a wonderful machine. Ten grand worth of gimmicks and high speed high price special effects the rear window <laughs> shut up no no i was just thinking my my minivan was 10 grand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a luxury luxury ride there the rear windows leaped up with a touch like frogs in a dynamite pond the white canvas top ran up and down like a roller coaster the dashboard was full of esoteric lights and dials and meters that i would never understand but there was no doubt in my mind that I was into a superior machine. The caddy wouldn't get off the line quite as fast as the red shark, but once it got rolling, around 80, it was pure smooth hell. All the elegant upholstered white lashing across the desert was like rolling through midnight on the old California Zephyr. I'm not getting a lot of these similes, but whatever. (laughs) I handled the whole transaction with a credit card that I later learned was canceled. Completely bogus. But the big computer hadn't mixed me yet, so I was still a fat gold credit rest. Later, going back on this transaction, I knew this conversation 
that had almost certainly ensued. Hello, this is VIP Car Rentals in Las Vegas. We're calling to check on number 875-045-616-B. Just a routine credit check, nothing urgent. Long pause on the other end, then. Holy shit! What? Pardon me. Yes, we have the number. It's been placed on an emergency red line status. Call the police at once and don't let him out of your sight. Another long pause. Well, uh, you see, the number is not on our current red list. And uh, number 875-045-616-B just left our lot and a new Cadillac convertible. No. Yes, he's long gone. Totally insured. Where? I think he said St. Louis. Yeah, that's what the card says. Raul Duke, left fielder and batting champion of St. Louis Browns. Five days at 25 per, plus 25 cents a mile. His card was valid, so of course we had no choice. This is true. The car rental agency had no legal reason to hassle me, since my card was technically valid. During the next four days, I drove that car all over Las Vegas, even passing the VIP agency's main office on Paradise Boulevard several times, and at no time was I bothered by any show of rudeness. This is one of the hallmarks of Vegas hospitality. The only bedrock rule is don't burn the locals. Beyond that, no big cares. They would rather not know. If Charlie Manson checked into the Sahara tomorrow morning, nobody would hassle him as long as he tipped big. I drove straight to the hotel after renting a car. There was still no sign of my attorney, so I decided to check in on my own. If only to get off the streets and avoid a public breakdown. I left the well in a VIP parking slot and shambled self-consciously in the lobby with one small leather bag, a handcrafted custom-built satchel that had been made for me by a leathersmith friend in Boulder. Our room was at the Flamingo. There's nerve center of the Strip, right across the street from Caesars Palace and the Dunes, side of the drug conference. The bulk of the... The bulk of the conferees were staying at the dunes, but those of us who signed up fashionably late were assigned to the Flamingo. This place was full of cops. I saw this at a glance. Most of them were standing around, trying to look casual, all dressed exactly alike in their cut-rate Vegas casuals. Plaid Bermuda shorts, Arnie Palmer golf shirts, and hairless white legs tapered down to rubberized beach sandals. It was a terrifying scene to walk into. A super stakeout of some kind. If I hadn't known about the conference, my mind might have snapped. You got the impression that somebody was going to be gunned down in a blazing crossfire at any moment. Maybe the entire Manson family. My arrival was badly timed. Most of the national DAs and other cop types had already checked in. These were the people who now stood around the lobby and stared grimly at newcomers. At newcomers. <clears throat> what appeared to be the final stakeout was only about 200 vacationing cops with nothing better to do. They didn't even notice each other. I waited up to the desk and got in line. The man in front of me was a police chief from some small town in Michigan. His Agnew style, his Agnew style wife was standing about three feet off to his right while he argued with the desk clerk. 
Look, fella, I told you I had a postcard here that says I have reservations at this hotel. Hell, I'm with the district attorney's conference. I've already paid for the room. Sorry, sir, you're on the late list. Your reservations were transferred to um, Moonlight Motel, which is out on Paradise Boulevard. and Actually, a very fine place of lodging and only 16 blocks for here with its own pool and you dirty little faggot call the manager i'm tired of i'm tired of listening to this dog shit the manager appeared and offered to call a cab this was obviously the second or maybe even the third act in a cruel drama that had begun long ago before i showed up the police chief's wife was crying the gaggle of friends that he'd mustered for support were too embarrassed to back him up even now, in this showdown at the desk, with this angry little cop firing his best and final shots, they knew he was beaten. He was going against the rules, and the people hired to enforce those rules said, no vacancy. After ten minutes of standing in line behind this noisy little asshole and his friends, I felt the bile rising. Where did this cop, of all people, get the nerve to argue with somebody in terms of right and reason? I'd been there with these fuzzy little shitheads. And no, I sensed had the desk clerk. He had the air of a man who'd been fucked around in his time by a fairly good cross-section of mean-tempered, roll lazy cops. Roll crazy, sorry. So now he's giving their argument back to him. It doesn't matter who's right or wrong, man, or who's paid the bill and who hasn't. What matters right now is that for the first time in your life, I can work out on a fucking pig. Fuck you, officer. I'm in charge here, and I'm telling you, we don't have room for you. I was enjoying this whip song, but after a while, I felt dizzy, bad, nervous, and my impatience got the better of my amusement. So I stepped around the pig and spoke directly to the desk clerk. Say, I said, I hate to interrupt, but I have a reservation, and I wonder if maybe I could... Just sort of slide through and get out of your way. I smiled, letting him know I'd been digging his snake bully act on the cop party. I was now standing there, psychologically off balance and staring at me like I was some kind of water rat crawling up to the desk. I looked pretty bad, wearing old Levi's and white Chuck Taylor all-star basketball sneakers. And my 10 peso Acapulco shirt had long since come apart at the shoulder seams from all that road wind. My beard was about three days old, bordering on standard wino trim, and my eyes were totally hidden by Sandy Bull's Saigon mirror shades. But my voice had the tone of a man who knows he has a reservation. I was gambling on my attorney's foresight, but I couldn't pass a chance to put the horn into a cop. And I was right. The reservation was in the attorney's name. The desk clerk hit the bell to summon the bag boy. This is all I have right. This is all I have with me right now. Okay, shit. This is all I have with me right now. I said, "The rest is out there in that white Cadillac convertible." I pointed the car that we could see parked just outside the front door. Can you have somebody to drive it around to the room? The desk clerk was friendly. Don't worry about a thing, sir. Just enough. You just enjoy your stay here. And if there's anything you need, just call the desk. I nodded and smiled, half watching the stunned reaction of the cop crowd right next to me. They were stupid with shock. Here they were arguing with every piece of leverage they could command for a room they already paid for. 
and suddenly their whole act gets sideswiped by some crusty drifter who looks like something out of an upper Michigan hobo jungle. And he checks in with a handful of credit cards. Jesus, what's happening in this world? Okay, chapter three. Let me knock the rest of this shit out. We can be done with this and go to bed. Chapter three. Savage Lucy. Teeth like baseballs. Eyes like jellied fire. I gave my bag to the boy who scurried up and told him to bring a quart of wild turkey and two-fifths of Bacardi and Nejo with a night's worth of ice. Our room was in one of the farthest wings of the Flamingo. The place is far more than a hotel. It's a sort of huge underfinanced playboy club in the middle of the desert. I take a quick break and uh, I, I lost my place, so I'm just going to start wherever. My idea was to get into the room, accept the booze and baggage delivery, then smoke my last big chunk of Singapore Grey while watching Walter Cronkite and waiting for my attorney to arrive. I needed this break. This moment of peace and refuge before we did the drug conference. There's going to be quite a difference between that and the Mint 400. That had been an observer gig. But this one would need participation in a very special stance. At the Mint 400, we were dealing with an essentially simpatical crowd. And if our behavior was gross and outrageous, well... It was only a matter of degree. But this time, our very presence would be an outrage. We'd be attending the conference under false pretenses and dealing from the start with a crowd that was con convened for the stated purposes of putting people like us in jail. We were the menace. Not in disguise, but stoned, obvious drug abusers. With flagrantly cranked up act that we intended to push the way to the limit. Not to prove any final sociological point, but, and not even as a conscious mockery, it was mainly a matter of lifestyle, a sense of obligation, and even duty. If the pigs were gathering in Vegas for a top-level drug conference, we thought the drug culture should be there represented. Beyond that, I'd been on my head for so long that a gig like this seemed perfectly logical. Considering the circumstances, I felt totally meshed with my karma. Or at least I was feeling this way until I got the big gray door that opened into the mini suite 1150 in the far wing. I ran my key into the knob lock and swung the door open thinking, ah, oh, home at last. But the door hit something, which I recognized at once as a human form. A girl of indeterminate age, with the face and form of a pit bull. She was wearing shapeless, a shapeless blue smock, and her eyes were angry. Somehow I knew that I'd had the right room. I wouldn't think otherwise, but the vibes were hopelessly right, and she seemed to know, too. Because she made no mood to stop me when I moved past her and into the suite. I tossed my leather satchel on one of the beds and looked around for what I knew I would see my attorney, stark naked, standing in the bathroom door with a drug-addled grin on his face. You degenerate pig, I muttered. 
It can be helped, he said, nodding at the bulldog girl. This is Lucy, he laughed distractively. You know, like Lucy in the sky with diamonds. I nodded, Lucy, who was eyeing me with definite venom. I was clearly some kind of enemy, some ugly intrusion on her scene. And it's clear from the way she moved around the room, very quick and tense on her feet, that she was sizing me up. She was ready for violence. There was not much doubt about that. Even my attorney picked up on it. Lucy, he snapped. Lucy, be cool, goddammit. Remember what happened to Bearport? No more of that, okay? He smiled nervously at her. She had the look of a beast that had just been tossed into sawdust pit to fight for its life. Lucy, this is my client. This is Mr. Duke, the famous journalist. He's paying for the sweet Lucy. He's on our side. She said nothing. I could see that she was not entirely in control of herself. Huge shoulders on the woman and a chin like Oscar Bonavina. I sat down on the bed and casually reached into my satchel for the mace can, and when I felt my tum on the shoot button, I was tempted to jerk the thing out and soak her down on general principles. I desperately needed peace, rest, sanctuary. The last thing I wanted was to fight to the finish, and my own hotel room was some kind of drug-crazed hormone monster. My attorney seemed to understand this. He knew why my hand was in the satchel. No, he shouted. Not here. We'll, we'll have to move out. I shrugged. He was twisted. I could see that, and so was Lucy. Her eyes were feverish and crazy. She was staring at me like I was something that would have to be rendered helpless before life could get back to whatever she considered normal. My attorney idled over and put his arm around her shoulders. Mr. Duke is my friend, he said gently. He loves artists. Let's show him your paintings. For the first time, I noticed the room was full of artwork, maybe 40 or 50 portraits, some in oil, some charcoal, all more or less the same size, all the same face. They were propped up on every flat surface. The face was vaguely familiar, but I couldn't get a fix on it. It was a girl with a broad mouth, a big nose, and extremely glittering eyes. A demoniacally sensual face. The kind of overstated, embarrassing, dramatic renderings that you find in the bedrooms of young female art students who get hung up on horses. Lucy paints portraits of Barbara Streisand, my attorney explained. She's an artist in Montana, he turned to the girl. What's the town you live she stared at him, then at me, then back at my attorney again. Then finally she said, Kalispell, way up north. I drew these from TV. My attorney nodded, nodded eagerly. Fantastic, he said. She came all the way down here. Just give all these portraits to Barbara. We're going into the Americana Hotel tonight and meet her backstage. Lucy smiled bashfully. There's no more hostility in her. I dropped the mace can and stood up. We obviously had a serious case on our hands. I hadn't counted on this. Finding my attorney whacked on acid and locked into some kind of preternatural courtship. Well, I said, I guess they brought the car around by now. Let's get stuff 
out of the trunk. He nodded eagerly. Absolutely, let's get the stuff. He smiled at Lucy. We'll be right back. Don't answer the phone if she rings. She grinned, made the one finger Jesus shriek sign. God bless, she said. My attorney pulled on a pair of elephant leg <laughs> pants and a glazed black shirt. Then we hurried out of the room. That I can, sounds, I can see. Sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I can see we was having some trouble getting oriented, but I refused to humor him. Well, I said, what are your plans? Plans? We were waiting for the elevator. Lucy, I said. He shook his head, struggling to focus on the question. Shit, he said finally. I met her on the plane and I had all that acid, he shrugged. You know, those little blue barrels. Jesus, she's a religious freak. She's run away from home for something like the fifth time in six months. It's terrible. I gave her that cap before I realized, shit, she's never even had a drink. Well, I said, it'll probably work out. But we can keep her loaded and peddle her ass at the drug convention. He stared at me. She's perfect for the gig, I said. These cops will go 50 bucks ahead to beat her into submission and then gang fuck her. We can set her up in one of those black backstreet motels, hang pictures of Jesus all over the room, and then turn these pigs loose on her. Hell, she's strong. She'll hold her own. His face his face was twitching badly. We're in the elevator now, descending into the lobby. Jesus Christ, he muttered. I knew you were sick, but I never expected to hear you actually say that kind of stuff. He seemed stunned. I laughed. It's straight economics. This girl's a godsend. I fixed him with a natural Bogart smile, all teeth. Shit, we're almost broke. And suddenly you pick up some muscle-bound loony who can make us a grand a day. No, he shouted. Stop talking like that. The elevator door opened and we walked towards the parking lot. I figured she could do about four at the time, I said. Christ, if we keep her full of acid, that's more like two grand a day. Maybe three. You filthy bastard, he smothered. I should cave your fucking head in. He was squinting at me, shielding his eyes from the sun. I spotted the well about 50 feet from the door. There it is, I said. Not a bad looking car for a pimp. He groaned. His face reflected the struggle that I knew he was having in his brain with sporadic acid rushes, bad waves of painful intensity, followed by total confusion. When I opened the trunk of the well to get the bags, he got angry. What the hell are you doing? He snapped. This isn't Lucy's car. I know, I said. It's mine. This is my luggage. The fuck it is, he shouted. Just because I'm a goddamn lawyer doesn't mean you can walk around stealing stuff right in front of me. He backed away. What the hell is wrong with you? You'll never beat a rap like this. After much difficulty, we got back to the room and tried to have a serious talk with Lucy. I felt like a Nazi, but it had to be done. She was not right for us. Not in this fragile situation. It was bad enough if she were only what she appeared to be, a strange young girl in the throes of a bad psychotic episode. But what worried, what worried me far more than was the likelihood that she would probably be just sane enough in a few hours to work herself into a towering, Jesus-based rage at the hazy recollection of being 
picked up and seduced in the Los Angeles International Airport by some kind of cruel Samoan who fed her liquor and LSD, then dragged her to Las Vegas hotel room and savagely penetrated every orifice in her body with his throbbing, uncircumcised member. I had a terrible vision of Lucy crashing into Barbara Streisand's dressing room at the Americana and laying this brutal story on her. That would finish us. They would track us down and probably castrate us both prior to booking. I explained this to my attorney, who was now in tears at the idea of sending Lucy away. She was still powerfully twisted, and I felt the only solution was to get her as far away as possible from the flamingo, from the flamingo before she strayed enough remembered where she'd been and what happened to her. Lucy, while we argued, was laying on the patio doing a charcoal sketch of Barbara Streisand, from memory this time. It was a full lace rendering, with teeth like baseballs and eyes like jellied fire. The sheer intensity of the thing made me nervous. This girl was a walking bomb. God alone knows what she might be doing with all that miswired energy right now, if she didn't get her sketch pad. And what was she going to do when she got straight enough to read The Vegas Visitor, as I just said, and learn that Streisand wasn't due at the Americana for another three weeks? My attorney finally agreed that Lucy would have to go. The possi possibility of the Man Act conviction, resulting in disbarment proceedings and total loss of his livelihood, was a key factor in his decision. A nasty federal rap especially for a monster Samoan facing a typical white middle-class jury in Southern California. They might even call it kidnapping, I said. Straight to the gas chamber, like chessmen. And even you managed to beat that, they'll send you back to Nevada for rape and consensual sodomy. No, he shouted. I felt sorry for the girl. I wanted to help her. I smiled. That's what Fatty Arbuckle said. And you know what they did to him? Who? Never mind, I said. Just pick yourself telling a jury that you tried to help this poor girl by giving her LSD and then taking her out to Las Vegas with one of your special stark naked back rubs. He shook his head sadly. You're right. They'd probably burn me at the goddamn stake. Set me in fire right there in the dock. Shit, it doesn't pay to try to help somebody these days. We coaxed Lucy down to the car, telling her what we thought it was that we thought it was about time to go meet Barbara. We had no trouble convincing her that she would take all her artwork, but she couldn't understand why my attorney wanted to bring her suitcase along. I don't want to embarrass her, she protested. She'll think I'm trying to move in with her or something. No, she won't, I said quickly. But that's all I could think to say. I felt like Martin Borman. What would happen to this poor wretch when we cut her loose? Jail? White slavery? What would Dr. Darwin do under these circumstances? Survival of the fittest? Was, the proper, was that the proper word? Had Darwin ever considered the idea of temporary unfitness? Like temporary insanity. Could the doctor have made room in his theory for a thing like LSD? All this was academic, of course. Lucy was a potential potentially fatal milestone on both our necks. There was absolutely no choice but to cut her adrift and hope her memory was fucked. But some acid victims, especially nervous mongoloids, have a strange kind of idiot savant capacity for remembering odd details and nothing else. 
it was possible that Lucy will spend two more days in the grip of total amnesia and then snap out of it with no memory of everything but our room number at the Flamingo. I thought about this, but the only alternative was to take her out of the desert and feed her remains to the lizards. I wasn't ready for this. It seemed a bit heavy for the time we were trying to protect my attorney. It came down to that, so the problem was to work out a balance to aim Lucy in a direction that wouldn't snap her mind and provoke a, provoke a disastrous backlash. She had money. My attorney had ascertained that. At least $200, he said. And we can always call the cops up there in Montana where she lives and turn her in. I was reluctant to do this. The only thing worse than turning in, turning her loose in Las Vegas, I felt, was turning her over to the authorities. And that was clearly out of the question. Anyway, not now. What kind of goddamn monster are you? I said. First you kidnap the girl, then you rape her, and now you want to have her locked up? He shrugged. It's just occurred to me, he said, that she has no witnesses. Anything she says about us is completely worthless. Us, I said. He stared at me. I could see that his head was clearing. The acid was almost gone. This meant that Lucy was probably coming down too. It was time to cut the cord. Lucy was waiting for us in the car, listening to the radio with a twisted smile on her face. We were standing about 10 yards off. Anybody watching us from the distance might have thought we were having some kind of vicious showdown argument about who had rights to the girl. It was a standard scene for a Vegas parking lot. We finally decided to make her a reservation with Americana. My attorney ambled over the car and got her last name under some pretense. Then I hurried inside and called the hotel, saying that I was her uncle and I wanted her to be treated very gently because she was an artist and might seem a trifle high-strung. The room clerk assured me they'd give her every courtesy. Then we drove her out to the airport, saying we were going to trade the Whitewell in for a Mercedes 600, and my attorney took her into the lobby with all her gear. She was still unhinged and babbling when we led her away. I drove around a corner and waited for him. Ten minutes later, he shuffled up the car and got in. Take off slowly, he said. Don't attract any attention. But when he got to Las Vegas Boulevard, he explained that he'd given one of the airport cab hustlers a $10 bill to see that his drunk girlfriend got to the Americana, where she had reservations. I told him to make sure she got there. I told him to make sure she got there, he said. You think she will? The guy said he'd pay the fare with the extra five bucks I gave him and tell the cabbie to humor her. I told him I had some business to take care of, but I'd be there myself in an hour. And if the girl wasn't already checked in, I'd come back out here and rip his lungs out. That's good, I said. You can't be subtle in this town. He grinned. As your attorney, I advise you to tell me where you put the goddamn mescaline. I pulled over. The kit bag was in the trunk. He fetched out two pellets, and we each, we each ate one. The sun was going down behind the scrub hills, northwest of the city. A good Christopherson tune was croaking out of the radio. We cruised back to town through the warm dusk, relaxed on the red leather seats of our electric white coupe de ville.
Maybe we should take it easy tonight, I said, as we flashed past the Tropicana. Right, he said. Let's find a good seafood restaurant and eat some red salmon. I fear a powerful lust for red salmon. I agreed. But first, we should go back to the hotel and settle in. Maybe have a quick swim and some rum. He leaned back on the seat and he was staring up at the sky. Night was coming down slowly. And that's the end of what I'm reading tonight. Ooh, I made it through that. We've totally blown the light here and done an hour and eight minutes right now. So um, future plans, we've got the, I, I'm still reading this fucking book. We got Horrible History Abridged. We're going to do. Yeah, I think we'll get a couple of episodes out of that. Yeah. Probably we'll, a few at least. Yeah. We may have three. Yeah, probably. Made up, yeah. But anyhow, we'll get on that. And if you haven't already, join the group on Facebook. The One More Mosh Pit. Mosh Pit's one word. One more Mosh Pit Productions. Come on in. It's going to be a crazy group to be in, but you'll have a little more freedom than you do elsewhere on Facebook. And there's all kinds of fun activities we can get into. And you can come to this place and I'll support you and you can promote your shit on my page. That's fine. But before we try to market anything, I need like a whole bunch of people to join. Because it's not going to be worth a fuck to market if we have like 30 people in there. So if you come on, bring like 10 fucking friends. Bring cool people though, because I don't want any fucking people get shitty and report people. If you report anybody on the page, your ass is getting booted. But yeah, come join that group. You know, if you. If you feel like you're a fucking pussy and you don't have thick enough skin to take jokes and shit like that, just stay the fuck home. But anyhow, that's that's the shit I got going right now. So I don't know scheduling-wise what's going to come next or probably more reading. I really want to get this book knocked out so I don't have to read it anymore. Anyhow, we're going to wrap her up because it is... It's, it's half past midnight already. So we're going to get out of here. You got anything to say, Steph? Um, well, hopefully we can have uh, one of the one of the episodes out right after Christmas, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's Christmas week next yeah, week. Yeah, it's going to be not crazy. We might not be able to record. Bullshit going on. Oh, my God, Christmas. <laughs> but anyhow, we're going to... In this podcast, we're going to sign off and we're going to go to fucking bed. Yeah. Say bye, Steph. Good night. Bye. Good night. <laughs>